Purposely Podcast, speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders, people who are making the world a better place. Here's your host, Mark Longbottom. When Sarah Brooke was 18, she travelled to Malawi from England. She nearly lost her life. The outcome was survival and a lifelong mission to help the people of Malawi, particularly orphan and at-risk children. Her charity, which she's grown, Sparkle Malawi, has started from small beginnings and is now delivering education, nutrition, medical support and community projects that really helps empower local people. You'll hear in this episode how she got off to a false start. Um, She learned and she came back and she delivered. I, I think you will enjoy it sit back relax and Sarah and I came in contact with each other uh many years ago uh when she came to uh source some funding and we at St James's Place Charitable Foundation were proud supporters of the Sparkle Foundation at the time uh, Sarah I just want to say welcome thank you and Pleasure. I wanted to know some kind of context as it stands really just d- dig into the context so if you could explain to the listeners what the Sparkle Foundation are doing today. Um, obviously, you're a UK-based charity, but your focus is in Africa, um, uh, significantly in Malawi. But if you could just give them a bit of a summary of what you guys do today, and then also just let us know how COVID-19 has affected the charity and, and yourself would be. Okay, no problem. So Sparkle Malawi, as it stands, um, we are registered, as you said, as a UK charity, the Sparkle Foundation, and Sparkle Malawi is one of our projects at the moment, our only one, but our view is to expand across Africa. Um, In Malawi, we're supporting orphans and vulnerable children with education, medical care, nutrition, and community outreach programmes. So our end goal is that anybody who passes through one of Sparkle programmes Um, will be provided with the resource to be able to become self-sufficient. So a lot of the work that we're trying to do is look at all the areas, um, starting from a child right the way through to adults, of how we can support so that people can um, be self-sustainable. That's our main priority. Um, And I suppose when you look at COVID um, as a main thing across the world with lockdown, there's been huge repercussions for us, um, not only from the UK side in terms of fundraising. Um, as it stands of today, we're 60% down on our donations from where we were last year. And year on year as a charity, we've been operating now for five years and we've grown every year to 15% in terms of our income. And so this year was our big year of growth. And unfortunately, um, with the reflection of donations, we've had to just manage our programmes as they are. Um, But over in Malawi, certainly the impact, they tried to do a lockdown and unfortunately um, the reality of lockdown in a country like Malawi is somewhat different to myself here in the UK and um, there was more of an issue that people can't get to the market to get food, um, how would they survive? And with only 20% of the country having electricity, they don't have um, luxuries such as a fridge. Um, so they do need to be going daily to get food um, just to keep it. And a lockdown just was not not practical in Malawi, which has meant schools have closed. Um, and for an organisation like Sparkle, we are no longer able to have our children coming, which has meant we've had to rethink the entirety of our programmes. So now we're delivering education in the community. 
Um, we obviously feed 300 children on a daily basis. We're now having to go and give care packages home by home to last the child for the entirety of the month. And we're having to educate um, people within the villages about COVID-19. And we've partnered with different hospitals in our area to support, whether it be with offering an ambulance service, um, hand sanitation centres, um, different trainings to make people aware of the signs and symptoms, and more recently looking at different ways of test kits that could be available um, to kind of overcome the crisis um, as present. But it's it's uncharted territory as it is for everyone, but certainly for the charity sector. Um, the programmes in Malawi aren't getting any less, but the donations are. So it's yeah. a very challenging situation for all. And just going back to your original point around um, empowerment and, and, you know, helping um, sustainability for, for um, the people that you help, the stakeholders, the, uh, the children and their families. Um, and that would that would you say that actually from when you're when you started the charity um, that's kind of been uh, a journey in terms of like focus so initially more of an aid focus or or kind of helping out with the immediate and then realizing actually you're more useful if you help people help themselves effectively. A hundred percent. I mean, I've learned from my mistakes along the way and where Sparkle was initially when we started to where we are now is almost unrecognisable, in, even in terms of our programmes. I mean, we started initially just as a nursery school and then we had the realisation that half of our children coming were hungry and no, you can't educate a child if they're hungry because for a number of reasons, but mainly concentration and our children were falling asleep. So then it was like, okay, we need to bring in a feeding programme. And then some of our children sadly were dying or were having terrible health issues. It's like, okay, there's no point educating a child if it's hungry and there's no point feeding a child if unfortunately it's potentially going to die anyway. So we need to bring in the medical element. And so that's when the medical came. And then we came to the realization that the children were with us from seven o'clock till five o'clock. And then when they went home to their guardians, because we're really one of those organizations that are so passionate about keeping children within their families and their households wherever possible. Um, again, we initially started as a bit of an orphanage and that really didn't work in our favour and we learned the hard way that actually we don't want children to become dependent on an organisation and then struggle even further down the line when they ultimately have to go back into their community. So we've always mm. tried to partner with um, people within our catchment area, whether it's granny, auntie, cousin or guardian. And what we then realised is that if they go home and they don't value education or their parents are in a difficult position and they don't see what the point is, we can only do 50% of the work. So then it was, okay, we actually need to speak to the parents and get them involved, those who are out of work, those who potentially have dropped out of school, provide them with the education and the understanding, um, like the children are, but obviously tailored to suit their needs and provide them with the school skills and the resource to be able to potentially start their own business so they're not reliant on the NGO system as a whole, not just Sparkle. And it organically developed really from our mistakes and learning firsthand on the ground. And we're yeah. still not there yet, but we're certainly very, very close to the direction that I'd hoped we would have been when we initially started. Yeah, fantastic. So uh, I know your age and, you know, obviously people listening, they can't um, see see that you are uh, youthful, certainly a lot youthful <laughs> than myself. Um, how does uh, someone so young and um, end up, you know, 
founding, starting, launching a charity, uh, social enterprise, I would, I would like to call it, because I think, you know, you guys are really savvy commercially. Um, but how how do you end up in the position? Because you've been running this charity for a number of years now um, from your startup. How many years is it now? Uh, ten years. Ten years, yeah, wow. Um, it would be great to hear how it all started. And, and I know it's a real personal story, your story, isn't it? Yeah, it's one um, obviously very close to my heart. And I think every single time I say it, um, even from an emotional perspective, it, it still resonates with me as if it was yesterday. So um, I left school, obviously, when I was 18. And um, my grandfather sadly passed away and left me some money. And I decided I wanted to travel the world. And I quite literally pointed at a map and my finger landed on Malawi. And I was like, right. <laughs> I'd like to go to Malawi and I was fortunate enough that I had a friend at school who had a relative over in Malawi. So he said, oh, he'll come with us. And off we both went. Um, and this was, yeah, I was just still 18. And when we arrived, we realized that we weren't able to stay together because we were friends, but we weren't married. So I was sent off to the village to live with another relative who couldn't speak that much English at the time. And um, it was, I mean, a complete shock and comparison to the life that I'd been in before um but one that I was prepared to take on the challenge and and the lady I was staying with kindly was hosting me offering me food um breakfast lunch and dinner which was the local um, Malawian dish which has got different names across Africa but in Malawi it's called Ensema which is their staple diet maize meal and cutting a long story short after six weeks of eating it um, and not being able to actually mention to my host that my stomach was not agreeing with this and um, it was actually becoming painful. I ended up with a twist in my bowel. Wow. So I got rushed to hospital. At the time, there was a local hospital, Zomba Central, which is somewhat developed now, but um, there's just one sort of emergency room and there weren't cars freely moving around back then in Malawi. So we flagged down anything that's going past. And my friend put me in the back of the truck and took me to the hospital and there were hundreds of people queuing um, to see this one doctor. Um, to put things in perspective, at that time, there was one doctor to 77,000 patients um, way back then. So you can only imagine if you go to hospital in Malawi, you are basically, it's life or death. And you've potentially walked up to an hour and a half to get to the hospital to be seen. And then you're yeah. facing sort of 10 hour queues. So when I was got there, um, apparently, because obviously I was unconscious by this point, uh, all the Malawian people told me to be seen first. And I was seen by the doctor who said, we need to operate now, um, but there's a high chance of HIV because we've got no sterile equipment and we've not really done this type of surgery before. And my friend was like, well, what's the other choice? And they said, you can go to a private hospital an hour and a half away, but you might she might die en route. Um, so so you can hell only of a imagine. decision. Yeah, hell of a decision. Yeah. Are you still friends with that person to, to this day? I am, um, mm. which, um, yeah, my parents are obviously extremely grateful to him for making that decision, which was to go to the private hospital. I went there um, to it's the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Blanta, which um, is now famous because Madonna has had quite a lot of um, input there with the Mercy James Centre, one of her children that she adopted um, from Malawi. Um, and they performed the surgery. I was recovering and he came to visit. And this is a friend and said to me, Sarah, when we were in the Zomba Central Hospital, um, obviously all of these people allowed you to be seen first and you were the doctor for two and a half hours. And when you came out, 
some of the people who were children in the queue um, potentially died. And wow. it was honestly single-handedly that moment that my entire life just changed because I was like, I know what it's like in my own country and that if someone pushes in front of you in a queue or someone's seen first how people feel, and that's people putting their own lives and even worse still their children's to have me saved. So I said there and then, I want to make a difference to at least one child's life um, and I'll come back and do something. And it went from there, really. I carried on traveling um, I went back to university, went to start at university and I said to my mum and dad, I need to go back, I need to go back. Um, you had a really bike. strong, really strong drive to do that. So so those those people that um, let you, you know, jump the queue and, and, and effectively saved your life, were they, do you think they were doing that because um, you were from overseas and it was just, that's how they operate in terms of, um, you know, selflessness and culturally, um doing that was the right thing or do you think it was just on the day there were some really awesome people in that queue I don't think I'll ever know that but certainly from being in the country and having been there over a long time and one of the driving forces for me to set up Sparkle in a different way and I suppose what's a sort of trending topic at the moment with the whole Black Lives Matter thing and it's a really important point I think the colour of my skin had a huge part to play and that's why I'm so determined now to give every single person, whoever, wherever possible, the same opportunity I would be given because it shouldn't be based ever on the colour of our skin and secondly, where we're located. Like, just because I've got the resources available in the UK to go to school, to go to hospital, shouldn't mean that someone in Malawi, for example, doesn't have those same opportunities. And that's um, something I'm really passionate about. And I've seen it over the years I've been working in the country. how um, I actually blame, to be honest, the NGO sector for creating this situation over the years um, where people, namely white people, to be honest, have turned up and handed things out and driven around in their twanky four by fours um, and kind of done what they thought was, you know, saving, whether it be Malawi or saving different parts of Africa. And, you know, Africa doesn't need to be saved. It's an amazing yeah. country, continent. Um, and there's so much opportunities there, and it's just the resource hasn't been made yeah. available for one thing or another. That's so, a, I mean, that's a that's a great point actually, because like you and I think you and I know that uh, you can do more damage than good sometimes, can't you? So you know, if you go in, if if a NGO could go into a community, or you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, do good do gooders could go into a community, um, and they can actually end up wreaking a bit of havoc you know maybe they choose one to help one group of people over another elevate them you know mess with the local economy and then bail um and and so so your kind of 10 years of doing this you fully understand the issues um and here you are like so at what so when you got home what age were you so i I came home at 19 and then was like i really want to go back and i think on that point that you just mentioned, the average life expectancy of an NGO in Malawi is two years um, yeah, because yeah. people set something up and then it all goes um, a slightly pear-shaped. But So when I came home and went to university, I said to my mum, you know, I want to go back out there and, um, and my dad. And my mum said, please, after everything that happened last time, I'm coming with you. So um, she did. We went back for three weeks and I came across this group of people who were in... Um, basically this derelict sort of shed area being served 
one cup of tea um, and a small bowl of porridge by this village chief lady. Um, sort of 50 children at the time and I looked at the place and I thought this is it I want to build them a new space um that they can have a better opportunity for the children so I said there and then I will come back I don't know when but I will build you something so off I went back to university um raised money while I was there and then in my last year after I'd um just before I was due to graduate I traveled back to Malawi with 30,000 pounds worked with a team of local builders and built this nursery school uh, my brothers and parents flew out we did a handover and I handed it back to the community and said thank you so much um mm. here it is thanks for saving my life and um, not that it was them directly but the country um yeah. good luck and I walked away and at 21 walking away truthfully thinking look at me what a fantastic thing that I've done and you know I've saved so many people that'll be that I'll go and live my nice life now and um, the rest is history and um, it was the biggest wake-up call I've ever had because I went back and I, I started working at the BBC I wanted to be a journalist so I was doing my um, all journalism qualifications and I decided actually I'm going to go back a year later and surprise them and see how the nursery school's getting along and when I just, turned just, up just as a one-off is it so you're back in the beat you're back to the BBC doing your um, qualifications and then just as a one-off visit, you thought you'd go and surprise them? Correct. I thought I'd yeah. just um, have um, have a quick trip and see what the situation is and how how it's kind of going on the ground with the children. And when I arrived, um, everything basically was locked up. Some of the iron sheets had been removed from the roof. No toys, no children in sight. And I was absolutely devastated, obviously, and I called home and mum and dad said, you know, Sarah... Uh, that's the charity sector, that's working in Africa, that's corruption. And I said, actually, no, um, it's a 21-year-old going into a village, building something they never really actually asked for, putting it there and walking away. And I've only got myself to blame and I have no knowledge. Yeah, it's an incredibly mature response from, from you at that time. So, like, have you always been quite an an old head on young shoulders because I'm not sure at that age I would have clicked to that you know like but I guess was it such a such a sort of um like in-depth experience or like full immersion experience that you like it just has you a lot of time to think I guess when you're there and really look at yourself and what you've done and but yeah, yeah I think incredible. it's always you're always going to look at what what's gone wrong and my I think my almost instinct always I'm very self-critical as a person um in terms of I'm my own worst enemy so I'll always look at well what could I have done differently and where did I go wrong and I you know for all the energy that I could have been spending blaming the community of well why have you done this I've came and it's a gesture of goodwill was actually I didn't give the correct advice I didn't give a business plan I didn't give a long-term aim for what we're trying to achieve and there was no consultation with the community of how do you want this I just went and built something and thought I knew what was best and it just wasn't the case and um it was only really when I walked away and then I was like I'm going to go and learn about the sector so I went to volunteer at 13 different organizations around the world and after learning from different charities and seeing how they do it I then realized okay this isn't just me that's made this issue there's a lot of other charities and um, they're also doing the same thing and we're pouring money into a bottomless pit 
and not going around about it in the correct way. And I had this vision then that this is a type of charity that I wanted to create. So I thought, right, rather than setting up myself, I'm going to go to other charities, do my research who are like-minded and see if they want to jo join together. Um, I went to probably 50 different charities and said, this is my idea. And they said, sorry, we've got one pool of funding. We're not interested. We're doing it this way. We're doing it this way. So then I went for the UK government and went to DFID and said, this is my idea. And he said, never going to happen. Um, so I was like, okay, game on. Um, let's, <laughs> let's, let's try and do something. So I worked out, um, I had a lot of great people around me at the time and basically reached out to different networks and learned and absorbed as much as I could and then realized I needed to send a regular amount of money across to Malawi to get this thing off the ground. So I moved to Dubai. Um, and, uh, when I moved to Dubai, I moved because the tax-free salary meant that I could send money over to Malawi because at the time, at 23, to send £1,000 over to Malawi when my salary was barely that was almost impossible. So yeah. went over for a week on holiday, applied for as many jobs as I could and got one and moved within three weeks. And then I basically worked for two and a half years and Sparkle became a registered charity. Um, in 2015, once I'd got enough money and I kept the charity going um, to a point that the ch number of children starts to increase. We went from having eight volunteers to paid staff members and the types of programs that I wanted to deliver on the ground were starting to come into fruition. And then I realised, actually, I can't anymore sit at my office desk. Um, I was working in PR and events and um, with corporate social responsibility, and I was feeling... I'm making rich people richer here. Meanwhile, my heart is being pulled to Malawi and wanting to be on the ground and be in the community. So I packed my bags and decided to move full time to the ground um, and work in right, Malawi. Because I think you and I met um, prior to, or maybe on a visit back to the UK um, from Dubai, it may have been. Because um, you actually, you've had two big... Um, like uh, mortality scares, haven't you? Uh, <laughs> you is it, there, was, there was there was one coming downstream soon after. So you, is it is it just not long after you got back to to Malawi? Yes. It... So I, when I went back, obviously the view was there. I was going to be there for two years, but unfortunately, after a year, I ended up with typhoid, malaria, and dengue fever. So I was flown back um, to the UK and then spent a serious amount of time in London Hospital of Tropical Diseases. Um, which took some time to recover. And then again, my parents were like, okay, maybe you should stay in the UK. And I was like, no, I need to go back. Things are really starting to take off. Um, so back I went and I then had uh, slight issues um, in terms of, unfortunately, a couple of our children um, were raped and um, I would defended what I believed was right. And unfortunately in Malawi, legally speaking, anybody under the age of 12 um, isn't able to give evidence in court without a legal representative, e.g. a parent or a guardian. And unfortunately, um, the person who was guilty of the charge was in the immediate family, which um, led to a whole world of issues. Yeah. And me ended up being put in prison, um, which was a complete nightmare. And I had two or three days where wrongfully I was being held. You, you, were, you were put in prison? Yeah. So, wow. I was put inside a cell with uh, 23 other women. Actually, majority murdered their husbands with machetes. 
Um, so that was an experience and a half and I had everything taken off me and just told I need to wait. Um, and my dad was called and given sort of, you can pay X amount of money and um, she can come out and it was a complete disaster. But yeah. in the end, obviously, a huge apology was made to me and the mistake was identified. But um, that's how far I was prepared to go to stand up for what I believe um, was right or wrong. And you can only imagine his parents at the time, I was 26, saying, OK, uh, I think now is the right time for you to come back. Yeah. Um, you've done your bit and Sparkle's doing well. And I was like, actually, no, I want to keep going. And um, by this point, the side of the charity and the network of people I'd met was growing and growing and we were taking volunteers. And I was offering advice to other charities about things to do and what not to do. And I was working with schools. And certainly in the UAE market, that's where my profile began to sort of be raised and after I did a TED talk uh, I was then awarded this humanitarian of the year for the Middle East and I became Fantastic. the first non-Arab to receive that Fantastic. and that was given to me by Sheikh Nan which ultimately skyrocketed things for me because people suddenly were inviting me to speak at different events and I think from there I realized actually the money that the charity needs to get in I was in the best position to do that yeah so I started um, looking for someone else to basically run the project on the ground. Um, so we had numerous international directors that went over um, to run Sparkle while I was sort of traveling the world, uh, charging people for my speeches and donating that to charity to Sparkle to fund all of our programs. Um, and that continued to work and is still working as of today as our model. And uh, actually in 2017, whilst visiting Malawi, I unfortunately fainted and hit concrete which left me with a bleed on the brain so um <laughs> Sarah yeah, stop no that, no more your poor parents that's all I can think that was the icing on the cake because I was actually announced dead in Malawi um due Gosh. to the lack of resources that they had they weren't able to check whether I had a pulse or not um in fact I was just in a coma um I was airlifted to South Africa where I stayed and was um into this induced coma my parents obviously flew over and um it took me almost the best part of a year to recover wow um i woke up and was learning to sort of walk talk everything again um so the trustees kindly took over sparkle for three to six months while i was um sort of finding my feet again and at yeah. that point my parents said you know you need to come home and be at home and i moved yeah. to london um and said okay yeah, I think now's the time. The charity yeah. got to a point, to be honest with you, that my end goal was that I didn't want to have international staff on the ground. And as of last year, we trained all of our staff to a point that they could run the organisation to the level that was more than um, what we'd ever anticipated. And it was always the plan that it would be people that had grown with the organisation that would take it forward in the direction that they wanted. And that's how we are today. So mm. I go and visit and I'm still obviously running things from the ground here in the UK in terms of fundraising and strategy, but all of our implementation of our project is done by our Malawian team, which is yeah. our 30 staff members. Fantastic. And that was kind of, you know, what where I was sort of wanting to nip it and say, um, you know, it's your, it's your charity, you founded it. Well, it's certainly in your shadow, you know, like it's it evolved from your passion, your experience, and those, those you know, those three life-threatening experiences that they had but 
you know, often the case for, uh, you know, strongly founder-led charities that they struggle to let go and they struggle to step back and they struggle to trust other people to do as good a job as they did or, you know, like that kind of, um, I think they call it founder syndrome, don't they? Yeah. Where, where are you on the um, pain-in-the-ass founder syndrome <laughs> um, uh, spectrum? Yeah, it's- it's so true. So almost, I was forced into it. Um, I very much, you know, have grown with Sparkle and 23 managing people that are double your age and in a different country was, it was completely outside of my comfort zone. And looking back, I was probably absolutely useless. But um, as we've grown with it, I've realised and I've been fortunate enough to have a board of trustees around me who've always been pushing um, for us to look more sort of business minded. And then when I had the latest accident in 2017, obviously the charity came to a standstill because I was unable to operate and things slowly started to fall apart. And it was the biggest wake up call for me, actually more so than the accident. And that's why I think the accident, I believe everything happens for a reason and it almost needed to happen for me to have that moment that the charity isn't about me. It can't be about me. And not that I ever truthfully really wanted it to be about me, but it became my story that was always a thing that was bringing people in. And actually the work that we're doing on the ground is enough of a story in itself. Mm. And it was that moment that I realized, okay, if I'm not around this charity, everything that I've worked towards needs to stand on its own two feet. And so I've got to let go and things aren't ever going to be how necessarily I would have done them, but there's so many things that I can't do. And I then made it my goal to surround myself with experts in the field who were better than me at so many different things. And because of that, we've grown um, to the size that we are today. And we're in a situation when I mentioned earlier about sort of the UK government, they're coming to me asking me, can we fund you? Because they know the model now is working. And the difference is, is that we aren't, you know, we started off a registered as Sparkle Malawi with a view that we'd just be in Malawi. And this was a pet project of mine that I wanted to make a difference for one child's life. We're now the Sparkle Foundation because the long-term view is that we create lots of charities underneath us of smaller entities or even people that want to start up other charities that actually don't go through all the mistakes that I did and all the failures. And we've got the resources now available as a business when you've got investors and your product works with the same situation with donors. Donors believe in us and know what we're doing is making a meaningful impact. So if we were to set up again or in another country or wherever the need was, and they'd support us. And I don't want anyone to have to go through what I did. And as I mentioned to you um, earlier, you know, the world doesn't need another charity. So let's all come together and let's do it in the right way. And I think that's what we're striving to achieve now. We are not the best anything, but what we do do well is we are not precious as an organization where it's just the sparkle way. And we bring in other charities, other businesses, other organizations that do do things individual things well and then when you put them all together suddenly you've got a full model um and that's the same for me as an individual um you're only as good as, i know it's cliche but as the team around you i'm so fortunate the network of people around me are better than me at so many things which has ultimately pulled me up yeah. as an individual but i think and now yeah always an upwards for I, us i think you're one of your strengths and powers is to, to get good people around you and and i think ultimately you know for the way you've done it, it's a really likely that um, it'll continue to have an impal- positive impact on on lives well beyond your involvement, which is fantastic. 
Um, and I know you, you know, as you say, you've you've utilized your story and you're really, really um honest and and you're authentic in the way you tell your story because it is an incredible story. But but equally, you know, you're um I know it's not always it's not about you. And uh I've been close enough to see um that you know you've done some huge amount of good and i think the big thing for me would be uh and i think this is what you you'll do more of i'm sure is educating and forming people to get it right in africa um so you know like it's great that brits go over to africa and assist with resources um but not doing it in a destructive way and all the stuff we've come you know you've covered off in this chat today um you you can stop them from making the same mistakes or get to the right conclusion quicker focus on you know empowerment and and you know working together um not doing that you know that that first um reflection you had which is incredibly a mature one but realizing you, you know you did to that village with not what they asked but what you felt was right you know it wasn't you didn't do it maliciously um you you totally but you also had the maturity to flip back and say actually it's not what they wanted what ha, do you sometimes sit back and think like it's kind of sliding doors like I, you know you look at your you must have people you went to school with who have gone on a very different path um you know, like, is there a part of you who wants to kind of get a bit of what they've got in terms of normality and like go and experience some new stuff or like personally, where are you? Are you on the kind of got, you got some UK areas of focus now, um, new things you want to have an adventure on. Where are you at the moment? Um, I think it's always an interesting one, sort of the work life balance and even from a personal perspective, because obviously the outside world people will say you know you've made so many sacrifices you've lived in a suitcase majority of the last 10 years of your life you've never had a home and you've it's been difficult for me to form sort of meaningful relationships because for me every single person that walks into my life is a, an opportunity for sparkle um but I actually see it from a completely different perspective in that and I have no qualms in saying this is that I've probably got more out of this than what the beneficiary type. I know, you know, we're in a situation, Sparkle's now supporting 17 villages with an outreach of seven and a half thousand people, which when you look back, the one child, one difference that I wanted to make age 18 is is evolved and is somewhat different um, now, but it is, you know, without sounding um, completely like I've lost it, a slight addiction in that I get so much back every morning waking up knowing that I am making a difference to someone's life and I have a purpose. I look at a lot of my friends who are in office jobs and they complaining if they're having to work an extra hour or you're not going to believe what's happened at work. And obviously there are challenges and struggles that I do come across, but there's almost this feeling inside of me that I'll never give up. And this, you know, I, I feel that this is what I've been called to do. And um, the small things, the tiny little things that I get to see are the most rewarding things imaginable. And for me, that's a driving force to keep going. Yeah. And I think there's no limit. I think we all put our own limits in our head of, you know, where would we be? And it was our actual five-year anniversary last week from when Sparkle was a registered. And to see and step back and look at the growth that we've had, you know, where the next five years will go, I have absolutely no idea. Um, but in terms of me as an individual, obviously my corporate life before I started in the charity was sort of doing corporate social responsibility and working with 
some of the you know big corporate entities to help them um, strategize of where they need to put some of their money to do greater good for all. And now having worked on the other side of it and being on the ground in a charity and seeing the difference that corporate donations can make, I've actually set up a side business, um, basically doing CSR consultancy, um, because I'm probably one of the only people, I certainly know that in London, um, having spoken to several different um, companies who've been both sides of the table, yeah, who's, yeah. you know, works with sort of the, all the big four, looking at how they're distributing their funds, you know, engagement amongst staff and what opportunities are available for volunteer programs and then at the same time being on the charity where if a corporate donation gets pulled having to say sorry but that feeding program isn't going to be happening and knowing it's not a number on a spreadsheet that's a child that's going to be suffering um long term down the line so i know it's so important to build these um, principles into any business but not just as a tick box exercise and nice to have actually ingrained within sort of the values of a company and um, for me, that's my big thing as a as a personal goal. In that, whether it be Spark or whether it be any other charity, is to bridge that gap between the corporate world and the charity sector. Because we've been working in isolation for so long, mm. and actually now, using as a real life example with COVID, I've been in a fortunate position as a charity that I've never had to ask for money. People hear about the story, or people invite me to do things, or like you mentioned earlier, we're looking at sort of social enterprise, different initiatives that. We always want to make sure that any sort of transaction donation is mutually beneficial because it's important that someone feels valued and get something back from it. Yeah. And in for me, time is the biggest thing that we need. I'm a one-man band at the moment as an only UK employee, and I've not got the skill set to be able to do the role of the size of the charity is at the minute happening with covid we've suddenly got 40 volunteers who are now helping on a daily basis so, that, and, so down down on income or down on donations but massively up on uh willing volunteers resource and time yeah. and that's because people and, at, at a um picked up on you know the charity your story and they're, they're time poor they've got a load of time and they want to dedicate it to something meaningful do you think it's is that partially because people are starting to reflect through this COVID-19 virus that actually there's something more important than you know their day job or what they're doing to earn a living and actually it's kind of you know tweaked a lot of people's interest in terms of how they can give back to humanity do you think that's a factor yeah I 100% mm. think that's a huge I think this has been a wake-up call for everybody that actually you know I always in a lot of my talks I say success isn't measured on the number of zeros at the end of our bank account and it's actually we need a new currency of goodwill and that's what it needs to be, you know, without our health, as COVID has shown, we're no, nothing. We could be the, you know, the virus has had no sort of stereotype of the type of people, technically, whether you're the richest person in the world or whether you're the poorest, you're still at the same risk. And I think that's been a reality that actually health, not only for ourselves, but for others, is so important. And people are looking certainly now more, to, they've got the time to reflect upon their own lives and think, well, what sort of, you know, legacy am I going to leave behind if I was to go? Would I be happy if, um, you know, I was unfortunately to lose my life today? Would I feel that I've done enough to help the world? And because of that, we're gaining this traction that people want to get involved. And I think it also helps that as a charity, um, you know, we've turned down donations. Um, I'm not going to beat around the bush about it because we've been in a situation where donors have said, here's you know, £20,000 and go and put up this building or go and do this or go and do that. 
and we're not going to be held accountable to our donors. Ultimately, we've worked so hard within the 10 years we've been in Malawi to build a relationship with the community that it's 50-50 and we'll only now put a project there if the need is there and if we've looked at the sustainability of it and within three to five years, it can run on itself. Otherwise, there's just no point. And I think that's where charities sometimes go wrong is that they grow so quickly because the money is available and then they shift from their original goals. Um, And that's a prime example with COVID. You know, the charity budget in the UK has got slashed, but suddenly if you're doing programmes related to COVID, there's money available. So I've been on calls with different CEOs of charities. I've, I've tried to formulate a group of people who are doing similar work to me so that we can all share advice. They were building schools, but obviously they can no longer build schools because there's lockdown and different things. But if they do a COVID programme, they could get money from the government um, to fund it. And you then get the risk that people are doing programmes that they haven't necessarily got the resource to be able to do. So All the skills. um, Yeah, yeah. Exactly, all the Mm. skills. So that's a link of actually, okay, you do this really well. We do this. Why don't we come together? And I think volunteers are able to see firsthand with Sparkle the difference that they can make, whether it's them coming in for a day or coming in, you know, we've got some people there now a month, but everyone's got a way that they can contribute. Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.